Well, I add my welcome to that of Michael's. We're really, really glad that you're here. Two years ago, Easter, we couldn't do this. And the place was a black cave. And you were at homes. And the tech team had moved all the cameras way forward. And I was teaching to a dark room, just imagining your faces. This is way better, right? <laughs> this is great. Because we were built for this. We were built to be together. We were built for fellowship. God said it's not good that you should be alone. So here we are in fellowship together, and we, we get to dive into God's Word on Easter morning. Before we do that, I would love to pray with you. Would you join me in prayer? Lord God, I, I invite the opportunity for you to speak and teach to us. So we pray that your Word would be foremost and uppermost and that it would become clear that you would cause us to have greater understanding. Father, I pray for individuals especially who are new to church, that you would give understanding of what these things are. And that only happens through the power of your Holy Spirit. So, Father, we ask for that. I, I pray for every single person who's part of the service, either watching from home virtually or in the auditorium live. God, that you would use this moment to expand the kingdom, to increase our understanding so that we might walk powerfully in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. It's in his name that we pray, and all God's people said, amen. amen. Please let, let me start from the end, at the beginning. And, and I want you to hear this, especially if you're new. Please know that I speak the truth in love. That's what we're called to do. The Bible commands individuals who belong to Jesus to speak the truth, but to speak the truth in love. So I'm speaking the truth in love when I say, if you have not yet discovered what it is to have total forgiveness of sin, today is your day. Today is the day to understand that you can have a fresh new beginning. A new beginning waits for you, and God offers it freely. And that is not to imply that there wasn't a cost and that there isn't a cost involved. For forgiveness to be true, for forgiveness to be legitimate, there has to be a payment. It had to come first. It's true in our culture. It was true 2,000 years ago. It's true as you read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. There is always a payment. You find that principle that there is no forgiveness of God without one irreplaceable component. And that component is a payment. Hebrews 9.22 captures it this way. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So for God's justice, for justice to be satisfied, there has to be a payment. And that's why there had to be a cross, which was utterly confusing to 12 young men. They couldn't make sense of it. They didn't understand. The 12 disciples who walked with Jesus for years were left bewildered. They could not put the pieces together. They certainly knew the sacrificial system. They grew up watching Passover. The celebrations were a high point of festivity for them. They lived the sacrificial system. It was part of who they were. But it had not yet clicked with them that Jesus had to be the ultimate sacrificial lamb. That God the Son would condescend to become Jesus the man and walk among us in order to take away the sin of the world. 
Scripture says very clearly that God's loved the world so much that He gave His one and only Son. But these components hadn't yet fit in their understanding that the one who believes in Him would not perish but have eternal life because He died for sin. What they know for sure is that Rome murdered Jesus and that their own national leaders had conspired together to see it carried out purely out of jealousy and envy and fear. They bitterly envied Jesus' popularity. Even Pilate knew that. Scripture is very clear that Pilate wasn't fooled. He knew exactly why these things were unfolding. But now it's three days. It's three days after they had witnessed a brutal execution. And, and they saw what it did to Jesus. They physically looked upon his body. And so the disciples find themselves in hiding. And they're convinced that their own lives are at risk. Scripture speaks very specifically to this in John 20, verse 19. The doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. So when it says for fear of the Jews, it's talking about the leadership. It's talking about the nation's leaders. So we find Peter and Andrew and James and John and Bartholomew and Matthew and James the son of Elpheus and Judas, but not Judas Iscariot because he's already dead by this point, but Judas the son of James and Simon and Philip, they're all there except for Thomas and that's another story. They're all locked in. The door is locked and no one can get in. The shutters are closed and the smell of fear permeates the room. They speak in hushed tones. Their voices move very rapidly, a reflection of how young they were. Most are in their mid-20s, but also a reflection of the angst that they feel. The fear has gripped them, and they're afraid at any moment the police will knock on the door, and they're going to face the exact same fate that Jesus faced. But news is spreading rapidly around the city. If TikTok or Twitter had existed in the first century, it would have gone global by this point. Individuals understood there was something going on. People are saying, he's alive. They've actually seen him and talked with him. It's very important to latch on to the emotional state of what's going on for the women who first came in contact with him that morning. It was a group of women who went to the tomb to see Jesus. You're familiar with the story. All the Marys went there. If, if you've read Scripture before, there's a lot of Marys in the Bible, right? And, and all the Marys show up, and they're going to the tomb, and they're expecting that they're going to find that tomb sealed. But that's not what they find when they arrive. It's early. It's just near daylight. And what they encounter is an empty tomb, and they encounter an angel, and we're told there's linen wrappings inside the tomb, but... There's no body. And so their reaction when they encounter these things is also fear. Look at this, Mark 16, 8. They went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. If you're new to New Hope, please know that um, when you see these Greek words come up, we do this on a regular basis here. So no apologies, and I'm not trying to teach you the Greek language, but there's some words you need to get in your head to understand the story. Tromos, ecstasis, phobeo. 
Tromos is very familiar to you from the English language because it's where we get the word trauma. Phobeus, that's phobia. Ecstasis, ecstasy, but it doesn't mean exactly what you think it means when you hear ecstasy. It's a displacement, a bewilderment of their mind. This is exactly how you would expect humans to react. It's raw emotion, it's visceral, it's instinctive. There's a surge of adrenaline and they run, but something is pursuing them. There's this gut-wrenching understanding that they've encountered something that they can't make sense of in normal life. First responders tell us this happens at accident scenes when there's information overload. You're taking in too much information, you can't make sense of it, and the body goes into shock. It's kind of the concept of what's going on here. Their eyewitness experience strains at the seams of what they know as reality. Now, not long after the first group arrives with their reports of what they've encountered, the first individual to actually tell them, the disciples, that she has actually seen him and talked with him is a woman by the name of Mariam. We know her as Mary Magdalene, that's the English translation, but she's known as Mariam of Magdala. And Mariam has a past, and her past is very dark. Jesus freed her from demon possession, seven demons, Scripture records. And so her past is very, very dark. But when Jesus restores and forgives, he restores completely, amen, new hope. That's what we've encountered here. A woman who's been completely restored, forgiven completely, and so she gets to be the first one to actually have a talk with Jesus. I love that reality, that the first person that Jesus talks with on Easter morning is a woman with a very dark past. Now, Mary Magdalene has already had these conversations with Jesus, and then we find in Mark 16, 9 and 10, she went immediately to find the disciples. It says this, she went and reported to those who had been with him, that's the disciples, while they were mourning and weeping, when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they celebrated for joy, right? No. They refused to believe. Another Greek word that would help you understand this refusal that's going on. This particular word is apostéo. Kind of drink in the definition for a moment while you hear this. Can you imagine? Mary shows up and she's knocking at the door. I've just seen Jesus. He's alive. And their response is, yeah, right. See, this particular Greek word, this unbelieving, this disbelief, it's more of the sense of dismissing. See, in the first century, women were not considered to be credible witnesses. I don't know where that came from, because in the Old Testament, they certainly were. There were female judges in the Old Testament, and they'd probably be surprised to know we have female judges today. But in the first century, whatever was going on there, they didn't allow women to testify in court settings. They didn't think of them as being credible witnesses, and so they became kind of dismissive when women would report things. Okay, so well, if that's true, maybe they'll believe men. So the very next verse, verse 12, Mark 16, he appeared to them, Jesus appeared to them in a different form to two of them while they were walking along on their way to the country. 
they went and reported it to the others, the disciples, but they did not believe them either. Now, this is way more than just cultural. This is more than just dismissive. This particular word is apistos. And this one actually means, I will not believe. I'm against that. There's an opposition to the belief. They're beyond skeptical. So earlier in the day, Peter had had a foot race to the tomb. He was racing John. John won, we know, understand. He wrote, actually, I beat Peter three times. He wrote that. <laughs> Check it yourself. You'll find that. So Peter, when John gets to the tomb first, goes racing past John. He runs right inside the tomb. And all he finds are the linens. There's not even an angel there. And he doesn't know what to do with the information. I don't know what to make of this, but I will not believe he rose from the dead. When you study this information, the conclusion you could very quickly come to when you study these accounts is that this does not sound like people who are manufacturing a resurrection story. So the writers of the Bible are very hard on themselves saying, yeah, we didn't get it. The truth of Christianity hinges on one central issue. Was Jesus indeed resurrected? Paul summed this up really very clearly when he said this in 1 Corinthians 15, 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. That's the same issue today in 2022. That, that same thing is still going on. So I'm here this morning to ask you this. Do you personally believe in the resurrection of Jesus? And if so, how has it changed you? How has it affected your life? Paul very quickly answers where he lands on the issue. He writes this in the very next verse, verse 20. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. See, Christianity, Christian belief at its very core is a resurrection faith. If you remove it, Christianity is dismantled. And that's the thing that Jesus kept pressing in this walk as he's advancing towards the cross in the final weeks. Let me give you an example. This comes from Matthew 16, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. No other event in the history of the world has been so attested to, so written, so pondered as the resurrection. Likewise, there's no other event in human history that has been so skeptically approached as the resurrection. If you were to Google it up right now or do an online search, you would find as of two weeks ago, there was a survey done of Americans about the resurrection. 66% of the American population says that they believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. It may make you think, cool, I'm part of the majority, if you're a believer. But when you come to the realization that 10 years ago, 2012, same survey, 74% of Americans said they believe in the resurrection. 10 years before that, 82% of Americans said they believe in the resurrection. 
kind of on a, a, a decline. So you very likely this morning know somebody who's very skeptical, skeptical about the resurrection issue. So you would put the disciples in that category. The disciples fall into that issue. You likely know someone who identifies with them who are predisposed to reject. Here's the major difference between us in 2022 and the disciples. They actually saw him die. They saw what Rome did to him. They knew there was no surviving that. They actually saw Jesus die brutally. So they're back inside this meeting room that we started with, and we find them in this upper room, and two individuals show up from a suburb called Emmaus, lies outside the city of Jerusalem, and they've encountered Jesus on a country road. And they race back to tell the disciples what happened, and they begin relaying the details. We get this from Luke 24, 33. They rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told what had happened on the road. So the conversation inside this hiding place apparently is taking them on a mental journey of the things that they've seen. Because we're told this detail in verse 36. They were talking about these things. So let me ask you for just a moment. Consider if you've been here over the last three weeks what we looked at that they actually encountered that they might be talking about. They walk with Jesus right into Jericho and they encounter a blind beggar whom Jesus only has to touch and restore his complete eyesight. And then they find themselves showing up in a cemetery where they've heard the good friend Lazarus is dead and they find out he's been dead four days in a tomb and yet Jesus calls him forth from the tomb and they see a dead man walking. And then only to go to what we saw last week where they arrive at the crest of Jerusalem. And tens upon thousands of people come to celebrate who Jesus is. And they bring palm branches with them. And they're, they're proclaiming him the king of Israel. How do you make sense of all of this? The greatest man to ever walk the planet is executed like a common criminal? It's absolutely inconceivable. And so they're still stunned. They've just lived through the most horrific experience. They saw Jesus arrested, tortured, crucified, and dead. And now multiple eyewitnesses are showing up and saying, he's alive. They can discuss the event for days and never arrive at an answer. They need perspective. Go with me to John 20, verse 19. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors were shut where the disciples were, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, peace be with you. In 2022, it's very hard to grasp the imagery. Fortunately, the New Testament writers really help us out with that. First of all, they say the doors are shut, and so our mind goes to, we close the door. Now, that's not what it describes. It says the doors are shut and barred. The shutters are closed. The doors are locked to a degree that people can't get through it for fear of the Jews, it says. And so that's phobos. That's that one word we talked about earlier. Yet as afraid as they are of being captured, 
There's even more terror when Jesus arrives in the room because he just materializes in front of them. Look at Luke's description. Luke 24, 36, while they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they were seeing a spirit. That's not Phobos. That's emphobos, and emphobos is shaking. Have you ever been so afraid that you begin to tremble? Have you ever had such an adrenaline rush you can't control it physically? This is what it's capturing there. It's accurate to say they're terrified. The panic is intense because there's a rush of adrenaline going through them. And their conclusion is it's a ghost. Why? Because they know that they know that they know that Jesus is dead. I saw it. So we get this detail in Luke 24, 36, while they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, peace be to you. Biblical peace, the way it's captured in the New Testament, is the word irene. And irene means to set at one again. In other words, to hit the reset button so that everything in your life would be at peace. Now, who wouldn't sign up for that? Who in the midst of trauma wouldn't want that? So, of course, that's where God's going to start. Of course. That's exactly what he'd do. In this moment, this is exactly what they need most. Who wouldn't want that when it feels like your world is collapsing? How can you have that kind of quietness in your soul? when it seems that the world is doing everything it can to take away your peace. What delivers that is the presence of Jesus. Jesus is the peace. He's the calming of my soul. He's the one who quiets the storm. If you experienced the peace of Jesus in your life, would you say amen this morning? Okay. Sounds like we understand each other on this. We know what it is to have the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. It's His presence. And so once He's established that, He takes it up a notch with them. Next verse, verse 38, and He said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself, touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Pause. You, you get a glimpse into your resurrected body right there. When you're in heaven one day, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you go to heaven, you get a glorified body and you get a glimpse here from what Jesus is revealing that you're going to actually have flesh and bone. So follow this. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet while they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement. He said to them, have you anything here to eat? Excellent! We get to eat in heaven. God created taste buds, and he knows that we like food, and we won't get fat in heaven. How great is that? Like, thank you, Lord. And Jesus goes on to do in verse 42 this visual for them. They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. 
Did you ever have somebody stare at you while you're eating? Awkward, right? Like, come on, I'm thinking their eyes are bugging out at this point. But the disciples, they now believe. But the believing came really, really hard. Jesus had to convince them rather forcefully because they're predisposed to not believing in a resurrection. So God has to take them up another notch to the next level because he knows exactly what they need next is a fresh perspective on the word of God. They needed to know why these things happen. Now, before we get that verse, just hang with me for a second. All that you've read to this point is Jesus' first encounter with the disciples after the crucifixion. And when you read it, you find he did not chastise them for abandoning him. I know what we would do. I know what I would do. It'd be like, you left me. But Jesus doesn't do that. He just, peace to you. It's really me. Let me give you a visual. There's no judgment on them. There's no chastising. But he knows that they need more. And so verse 44 comes along. Now he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all the things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. See, it's, it's not that the information wasn't there. The issue is they didn't understand and they had not assembled all the pieces together. So God has to say, I, I told you, this was all going to unfold exactly this way. That's why he said, these are my words which I spoke to you. In other words, I came to do precisely these very things and the plan is now complete. You remember what Jesus cried out from the cross at the very end? We're told he breathed his last, but just before that, he cried out. It is finished, right? Hold that thought. We'll come back to that in just a minute. It links together with what's going on here. These individuals didn't put the pieces together. In referring to Moses and the law and the prophets, Jesus is making clear that this was all part of the plan. You just didn't get it. You missed it until now. Here's an example for you. This comes from Psalm 1610. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. The Jews believed, the ancient world, that Sheol was the place of the dead. You won't abandon me to the place of the dead. You won't allow your Holy One to rot in the ground. So now we get it looking back on it from a historical perspective. We say, oh, that makes sense. I get it. Why didn't they see it? That verse is describing the unwavering confidence Jesus had in the Father and the plan to rescue all of us if we would believe it as he's walking toward the cross. So along comes verse 45, and verse 45 is this very powerful reminder from God himself of what he has actually done for us. Verse 45, 
Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance and for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Come back to verse 45, just a few words. Then he opened their mind to understand the Scriptures. He's done exactly that thing for you if you are a believer this morning. He's opened your mind to understand this and make sense of it all. It clicks with you. See, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, it's one of the evidences that you're a true believer in Jesus Christ that you can make sense of the story. It's the evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in you because the Bible actually says to those who are perishing, this stuff appears as foolishness. But to those who are the redeemed, you get it. It, it clicks with you. So hopefully you personally have greater understanding of the Bible than what you did a year ago or five years ago or ten years ago. You're, you're growing in your understanding and your knowledge because that's the evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in your life. But within this same verse, there's also this explanation that ties all of this together. I'll phrase it this way. Why were they so resistant to believing? It's not only the brutality of what they saw happen to Jesus that made it so hard to believe. See, these are good Jewish men. They're well-behaved. In their community, they were upstanding. They did what they were told to do. They had a reputation. Businessmen, individuals who worked hard, kept their noses clean, and culture had told them that they were good enough. See, the struggle that they're having here is not just a biological struggle with the resurrection. The struggle that they're actually having here is with the preconceived idea about God. In other words, religion. Because religion had told them, if you cross the T's and dot the I's, you give away enough money, you stay out of trouble, behave yourself, and maybe it'll tip scales in your favor, and, and God will let you in. He'll, he'll see you as righteous. Because if you're born Jewish, you're born to the chosen nation, and you just had to do all the right things. So there's no doubt in their mind that heaven's waiting for them. That's what culture said. So there's been no room in their understanding for the death of Messiah. Therefore, there's no place for a resurrection because they did not understand what many people do not understand today living in our world, that there had to be a price paid for their sin. See, if, if you don't see the need to deal with your sin, why would a price need to be paid Therefore, there's no need for a sacrifice. Therefore, there's no need for a resurrection because if you believe that you're already good enough, well, what else is there to do? So what you're seeing here is Jesus is correcting their thinking. Their struggle is with religion and with the biological Jesus. He's already dealt with the biological side. I got hands, I got feet, I'm flesh and bone. But there's a bigger issue here. He's letting them know this is not a series of events that's gone horribly out of control. This is part of the predetermined plan of God. There's purpose in this, so watch it through that lens. Look with me again at Luke 24. God has to say to them, I, I told you 
that Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. Here's why, verse 47, that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in His name so that you and I could be forgiven, so that the disciples could be forgiven of sin. It had to happen. So Paul really summed this up very, very well when he wrote Romans 4. Romans 4 says this, Jesus was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. If you're new to church, that word transgression is just a big $10 church word. It means sin. That's what transgression is. Jesus was delivered over for our sin. If I asked you this morning, who delivered him over? You likely would respond, well, Pilate and, and the high priest and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and Judas, he's going to be in that group. And the crowd, the crowd delivered him over. That's true, they did, but they did not deliver him over because of our transgressions. They weren't delivering him over because of our sin. They were delivering him over out of envy and fear that political things were getting out of control. See, this word delivered over, it's actually a, a judicial term in the ancient language. It, it means to take a criminal who's been sentenced and hand them over for their punishment. That's the concept behind delivered him over. And that's a match behind Romans 8.32. He, God, who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. See, New Hope, God did that. God the Father loves you so much, he did not spare Jesus, but he delivered him over. And you might logically say, why? Why would he do that? Verse 25 is the answer to that, because of our transgressions, because of our sins, so that you would not have to carry the weight of your sin into eternity, because God is just, and justice demands a payment. Justice demands that the debt be paid, and the paycheck of sin is death. So God allows God to be executed in our place, and God allows God to be put in a tomb but praise God, New Hope, it doesn't end there. Praise God that it didn't stop on Friday. We're here this morning because it didn't stop there. See, without his death, the price would still have to be paid. Without his resurrection, there would be no proof of the payment. See, the two are inseparably bound together. Romans 4, he was raised, verse 25, because, because of our justification. Get this, my sin killed him. Your sin killed him, but for our justification, God raised him. So the resurrection is actually the proof of God's acceptance of the sacrifice. So to refuse the resurrection, this is what the disciples had done. To refuse the resurrection is to refuse the very proof that God had conquered sin and death the fact that he rose tells us the price has been paid, and it's been paid in full. So back to that phrase Jesus shouted from the cross. We said the last thing he said was, it is finished, which in the ancient language is the word teleo. 
And teleo is the word that was used that was stamped on a piece of paper. If you had a loan from a loan officer and you went to make your last payment, when you handed over your last payment, that loan officer would stamp your paper or leather or whatever you had to let oh, paid in full. So what Jesus is shouting from the cross when he says, it is finished, he's shouting the word teleo, and he's saying, it's paid, it's paid in full. Are we together on that? We, we get that. So please know that I speak the truth in love. When I say, if you have not yet discovered what it is to have complete forgiveness of your sin, and by that I mean your past, present, and future sin, Specifically, whatever you did 10 years ago, 20 years ago, a year ago, last night. Whatever you might do today, whatever you might do a week from now or five years from now, Jesus paid it all. Everything. He doesn't have to be re-crucified and put back on the cross. He says, Toleo. It's paid in full. It's done. If you have not yet discovered what it is to have complete forgiveness of your sin, you need Jesus because a fresh new start waits for you this morning and you can't earn it because he offers it freely. Please let me double emphasize that. It is not earned. Even though with every natural fiber of our being, we want to earn God's forgiveness. And that might be news to you if you grew up in a tradition that taught it's something that if you're just good enough, if you do enough good things, God's going to let you in one day. That's not what Scripture says. Scripture says grace that God gives to us. It says this in Ephesians 2.9, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works. If you haven't yet found God's grace, i got to tell you this morning, it's amazing. And somebody should write a song about it. because it's that good. Grace has absolutely nothing to do with my religious activity. Salvation does not come by baptism. It doesn't come by communion. It doesn't come by church membership. It doesn't come by giving money. If it did, it would be earned. The the grace of God, it only comes one way. When you surrender to Jesus as your Lord and Savior, And as a result of that, recognizing what he did for you, you're repenting of your sin. You're saying, God, I've been going the wrong direction. I'm going this way now. I want a new beginning. I want a complete new start. See, the only way that you get heaven is by being completely free from sin. And this might be a newsflash, but God does not grade on a curve. And there's no such thing as a white lie. And yes, God does see everything that we do, and he knows if you're living in sin, and there's no winking at sin. But here's great news. Sin is a wound that can be healed. You got failure in your life? Welcome to the human race. Failure is a wound that can be healed because of the grace of God, because there is a complete new beginning in Jesus. Scripture says this in Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, finish it with me, church, you will be saved. 
a pretty strong promise. There's something that you need to do. If you need Jesus this morning and you recognize, I've never heard this stuff before. I need what he's offering. You could do it right in the quietness of your seat. You can close your eyes and just say to God, I confess I'm a sinner. And by confessing that you're a sinner, you're not going to surprise God. He knows. And what you need to tell him is, I need Jesus. I need him as my Lord and my Savior. And that requires you to begin living differently. That's why I asked, has the resurrection affected you? How are you living differently? Scripture says this in Romans 8.1, if that's true of you, that you've confessed Jesus as your Lord and Savior, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Praise God for that. So that means for you this morning that your standing and my standing and the standing of the disciples, our standing before God is not based on our feelings because our feelings change like the wind, don't they? Feelings move to and fro. My standing before God is based in who God says that I am, and he says you are the redeemed of the Lord. And nothing can change that if you are truly a follower of Jesus. So if you're searching for your identity this morning, know this. You don't have to go any further. Your identity is in Christ Jesus. He defines you. And if he says you're his, you're his. So we're going to sing a fantastic song in just a minute to close this. But before we do, I want to pray with you, but I want to end with this verse because it's true of us. 1 Corinthians 15, 57. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Father, I thank you for every individual who's part of this service, whether virtually or in this auditorium, and have responded to your word. God, there's individuals in this auditorium who walk with you faithfully and yet felt conviction over the way that they've been living and recognize the requirement is that you would see us pursue a new way of life, that we would repent of our sin. The Father, for the individuals who are new to church and maybe hearing this stuff for the first time, God, I pray that you would surround them with the loving arms that only you have, that the power of your Holy Spirit would encircle them, and that they would feel the need, God. They would know the need to yield to you, and that today would be a brand new beginning. I pray, Father, for that reality to be true in this moment as we ponder how to respond to this. God, as we prepare to sing, I pray that you would fill our lungs so that we would praise you in a way that you are worthy of and that you would know the praise that comes from the depth of our hearts and that you would send us out with your blessing on us, that we would walk in the knowledge of what we know to be true, that we are not ashamed of this gospel and we're willing to tell our friends, use it in our life, Father. Let us speak the truth in love. We pray for this in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. I need you to know that at the end of the service, after we finish the song, I'll be down here in the front. If we haven't met yet, I'd love to meet you. And if you want somebody to pray with you, I'd be honored to do that. 
And over at the prayer room over there, there'll be individuals over in that side room. If you want somebody to pray with you about some specific issues, they'll be, they'll be there for that reason too. Right now, let's stand together if you would do that with me and we're gonna prepare to worship the King.